Hello everyone and welcome to Sit and Listen, bringing scientists to you. Sit and Listen is a production of Science in the News, a graduate student-run organization at Harvard University committed to bridging the communication gap between scientists and, well, the rest of the world. My name is Vinnie Mani. I'm Elizabeth Yench. And I'm Amy Gilson, and today we'll be talking to you about genetically modified organisms. So to kick off the first podcast in our series, we thought it would be apt to briefly highlight some important scientific perspectives on GMO and to provide you with a little bit of material for your next casual dinner table debate. So first off, what exactly is a GMO, Elizabeth? Well, Vinny, a GMO is a living organism that has had its genetic material artificially manipulated through genetic engineering. So the genes of any given organism are what determine what it looks like, how it survives, and what it produces, among other things. So genetic engineering gives scientists the ability to alter some specific aspects of an organism. Genetically modified organisms are actually used quite often in lab work, um, and so are not just a growing part of our diet. But since the genetically modified crops and GMs in our food are the current controversy. That's what we'll focus on in general in this podcast. The thing is, we have been changing crops for a really long time. At first, before we even knew what genes were, we used selective breeding to do this. So this involves picking specific plants that have a desired trait like faster growth or bigger fruit and using them to breed a new generation of crops that display that trait. While this does not involve using the same modern methods that concern people these days with genetically modified crops, it is still important to note that this is a process that allows people to grow plants in a way that suits them as opposed to how these plants might normally grow. Yeah, so like, for example, um, I was looking at an article that was comparing domesticated corn, domesticated tomatoes, domesticated wheat to their progenitors. And when you look at corn, so now like you think of, I don't know, like Iowa, it's just these big stalks with these big ears of corn. But I think it's called teocyte, which is um, what it was, corn was selected from over time. And it's just this like, it looks sort of like a wild grass almost, but with thicker stalks going in in all directions. And instead of a big ear of corn, it's sort of this like tiny thing with like several ears on it that's kind of long and maybe a couple inches. So when you think about how different that is from regular corn, like the difference is just like night and day. It's amazing. Yeah, it didn't take these genetic engineering methods to make differences between crops that we would presume might arise naturally and ones that humans want to arise. A more manipulative way of generating crops with different traits is mutation breeding. This practice exposes seeds to chemicals or radiation to generate random mutations in their genes. So in nature, these random mutations actually occur fairly regularly, And these lead to variations within populations that might allow certain plants to be better suited to survive in different conditions. So scientists who use mutation breeding are really just taking advantage of these natural processes that lead to different populations to try and solve current agricultural problems. So when a group of seeds with many different random mutations is generated, They can be tested in different conditions to see if one just happens to have a mutation that, for example, makes it resistant to infection by a certain bacteria. There are currently over 3,000 mutant varieties of crop in use right now, including the Rio Red grapefruit grown in Texas and cereals like rice and barley that are grown in other parts of the world. This method is popular because though it can be hit or miss and though finding a beneficial mutation is pretty unlikely, it's still much cheaper than fully designing a GMO crop and it faces far fewer regulations 
So that that really surprised me that they were were using that, just because it seems like it's so random and, and untargeted, and you and they're not necessarily fully characterizing what they've done. But I think that the idea there is basically to sort of speed up the artificial selection that was already going on in crops, because sort of the way evolution works, whether it's natural selection or artificial selection with people picking the crops or the plants that look the the best is um, there's some variation in the crop or in the population, and this variation is genetic. And then you can select what's most interesting there. And if you don't have a lot of variation, well, then you can introduce some variation and just select on top of that. And so I think that's what mutation breeding is trying to do, because um, there are so few mutations that arise just generation to generation as you naturally raise crops that you're like, okay, we want to pick up the process a little more and have a little more variation there. And I always think of random mutation generation as such an interesting process, because when you think about it, it's taken a long time, but random mutations throughout evolution have gotten us to a pretty interesting state, Mm -hmm. like it's done a lot so far. So I think it's an interesting idea, instead of trying to think, we understand what we need to do here, it's interesting to just say, let's randomly do things and see what works, because throughout living history on Earth... That's it's what Mother up. Nature did. <laughs> so it's so natural. We're know. just speeding up the evolutionary process. So the random mutations are, as the name implies, randoms. But then we have what we're using more now, which is specific gene insertion. The most regulated form of genetic modification, and the one you probably think of when you hear GMO, is gene insertion. So this first involves identifying and isolating an existing gene of interest from another organism whether it be for herbicide resistance or increased production of a specific nutrient, and inserting it into a vector, which is just a piece of DNA that will be used to carry the gene into the target organism. This gene is then inserted into plant cells using either agrobacteria, which contain a natural mechanism for inserting genetic material into the plant genome, or a gene gun, which bombards plant cells with microscopic particles that are just covered in the DNA fragment of interest. This fragment usually has a marker that allows scientists to tell really quickly whether a given cell has the insertion, and then they will allow that cell to regenerate into a whole plant by growing them in the presence of plant hormones and nutrients. Once they allow these plants to grow enough and produce seeds, they could start studying them in greenhouses and then in open fields to test if the plant is still growing as it should, if the inserted gene is doing what it's supposed to, and if the crops are safe in the first place for the environment and for consumption. So I think an interesting point that you brought up is people are more, you said people are more concerned about the genetic modification than they are about mutation breeding. Or genetic insertion. Yeah, genetic insertion. Yeah. Right? And that to me is is actually a little funny because, I don't know, to me, I, I would I would feel that mutation breeding is a little bit scarier because you're making more modifications Characterizing them less. Characterizing them less. Mm-hmm. Whereas with gene insertion, you're you're trying to look for things that you've predetermined. So I think in terms of the process, that's a little puzzling to me as a scientist. Yeah, I was also completely caught off guard by the fact that, I mean, I didn't know this was happening in our crops. I knew it was happening in, happening in research because I used to do plant research and they randomly mutagenize plants all the time for research because you don't know what you're getting. And I think there are ways to find out what you're getting and still test them. But it is interesting that this is the one that people aren't worried about when they are so worried about the idea of someone taking one natural gene and put it into another natural genome and like really trying to understand what they're doing as opposed to just barreling with it with 
mutagens and then seeing what happens, which does not necessarily mean it'll be dangerous. It just means that you need to take some time and understand what you did to the thing. I I think that because scientists do sort of more fully characterize when you're doing gene insertion, it seems more controlled for us. But I can also see random mutagenesis is just what's happening naturally. Like there's a random mutations between you and your child, for example. And so, okay, so more, that's just more of the same thing. Whereas no matter how long you breed corn, there's never going to be a gene in it from a bacteria. No matter how long you breed bacteria, there's never going to be a gene in it from humans. More, more or less. I, mean, I guess yeah, there are some, there are always like, you know, exceptions. Right. Yeah. No, that's uh, true. They yeah. both have things that are a little off-putting about them, and they both have things that make them seem natural and okay. I guess so, so while we're talking about gene insertion, even though there are a lot of variants that were of like things that are cultivated now that were developed using random mutagenesis, most of what's grown in, in the U.S. And I, and I think around the world was actually developed using gene insertion. Yeah, that's Be- because that's you know the, the way that you can say, okay, I want resistance, so research, research, research. Now you have resistance to whatever chemical. Today, GM crops are so widely used, and the debates surrounding them are so varied and plentiful that it can seem like gene insertion technology just became plug-and-play overnight. But it didn't, and isn't, even today. So let's take a look back at the early days of genetic engineering technology to see what went into making the first genetically modified crops. Back in the late 1970s, two things happened that made genetically engineered crops seem within reach for the very first time. In the first case, 1978, the gene coding for human insulin was introduced into a bacteria turning them into little factories of insulin protein that could be used for diabetes patients. This advance made insulin safer and more plentiful, since prior to that moment, patients had to use insulin isolated from pig pancreases. This made genetic engineering seem possible because it was the first really useful, commercially viable genetic modification made to an organism. And in fact, it's still how we manufacture insulin today. Now, the other advance showed that it might be possible to genetically engineer not just bacteria, but also plants. It was the discovery that a bacteria called Agrobacterium tumefaciens, which causes tumors in plants it infects, actually functions by splicing or adding several of its own genes to its plant victim's genome. So this bacteria really provided, it seemed, natural biotechnology, if you will, for adding genes to plants. When this was discovered in the 70s, it really set off a race to use agrobacterium to insert genes into plants. And there were major players working on this in the U.S. um, and universities and at Monsanto, also in Belgium. And they spent years sort of collectively figuring out how this bacteria works and then finally trying to coax its bacterial machinery to deliver a gene of choice into a plant's genome. And finally, in, in 1983, sort of everyone who was working on it sort of proved ar- right around then that it was actually possible. Just with that sort of proof of concept, there were still lots of technical difficulties to overcome before it could actually be used to generate a GM crop. For example, even once they had a gene successfully incorporated into the plant genome, it wasn't reliably active. So just like you might not make any dishes when you get a new recipe book, the plants weren't reliably making protein from the new DNA. Researchers realized that to get this to work, they needed to improve a stretch of DNA that's just next to the gene, which is called a promoter, and which provides the instructions on how much the gene should be used. Surprisingly, perhaps, this problem was overcome through cauliflower, my favorite brassica. 
around this time, researchers were observing, this was sort of unrelated research, that when cauliflower is infected with the cauliflower mosaic virus, the virus's genes were super highly expressed. It was really active. Scientists at Monsanto seized on this discovery and incorporated the viral promoter, which has the beautiful name 35S, into their set of genetic tools. Like many episodes in GMO history, lots of scientists all over were contributing to the discovery. But Monsanto won the race to patent and um, really commercialize this technology. So that was a lot of the sort of initial basic science that went into making GMOs possible. But if you're a company, you also want to make money. You don't just want to do science. This basic science showed that it was possible to get a gene into a plant, but the genes that they had been inserting were just there to show that their techniques were working. They weren't interesting traits like added growth or pesticide resistance. But there was one sort of really obvious first target, a first gene to add to crops. And this comes from a bacteria called Bacillus thuringiensis. And what made this such an obvious first target is that it had been known about for almost 100 years already at that point. So in in 1901, it was discovered that this bacteria produces a toxin that kills a broad range of insects. It had been used since the 1930s as a sort of natural pesticide. In fact, it's still used as an organic pesticide on organic farms today. The way it works is that a protein that is expressed in this bacteria, when it's ingested by a bug, it binds to another protein in the gut of that bug and kills it. It was a tried and tested pesticide. It hadn't been linked to any adverse health effects in mammals. And because it's a protein, that means there's a gene that codes for it, which could potentially be transferred to a crop species. Once the science was at this point, there was again a race to see who could first successfully do this. Monsanto, again, was one of the major players. And once they successfully transformed plants with the BT gene, it was a huge accomplishment, but the plants weren't producing very little toxin. This time, they determined the problem wasn't with the promoter. They already had the promoter set. So what was it? To answer this question, they looked back to a a research that had been done in the early 80s. In the early 80s, it was discovered that the genetic code in bacteria is slightly different from plants. So the researchers hypothesized that for the plant to effectively make this bacterial toxin, they had to design a slightly modified gene that still coded for this toxin, but that did it in the plant's sort of native language. When they did this, it, it did the trick. And this technique, which is called genetic harmonization, is still routinely used in labs today. So the U.S. House of Representatives recently passed H.R. 1599, which is a legislation that bans the requirement to label products containing genetically modified organisms. And this bill has, of course, caused a little bit of controversy, namely debating states' rights to regulate genetically modified organisms and the grip of Monsanto on the government. Historically, regulations on GMOs in the United States are quite lax compared to Europe. In Europe, pretty much every newly developed GM crop goes through an approval process, and GM products are labeled in supermarkets. In the United States, GMOs don't have to go through this approval process if they can be shown to be substantially equivalent to non-GM crops, that is to say, having the same amounts of protein, starch, and other important nutrients. And of course, no labels. And this is why I have such mixed feelings about this bill, because I think I like the end result of it, that it's kind of restricting the ability of people and states to overreact to genetically modified crops when they're not just universally bad. But I am still not a big fan of, as you said, the grip of Monsanto on the government. I mean, 
It's not like Monsanto and the House were just like, you know what? Let's defend science today. Let's do something good. No, they were out to make money. So it's a really hard thing to stomach. Support the end, but not the means. Exactly. (laughs) Whether you label GMOs or not, it's not really clear what's at stake other than consumers being able to make a decision about whether they want to consume GMOs or not. And that's what makes this really sort of unpalatable to me. It's Even though I don't think that people, even though I'm not afraid of eating GMOs and I don't think that GMOs are inherently bad for the environment, I'm really sort of uncomfortable with the government and companies saying what people can or can't make their decisions based on. I think that's a really good point, is that it does seem like an odd thing to regulate. So what exactly are the criteria in the U.S. to approve a GM food as safe? Well, this comes down to the function of three organizations. The Food and Drug Administration, FDA, evaluates the safety of food products for human consumption. The U.S. Department of Agriculture prevents the spread of weeds within the country. And the Environmental Protection Agency determines the risks of pesticides and chemicals to human and environmental health. Because GM foods fall under the FDA classification of generally recognized as safe, they typically do not require pre-market approval or special labeling. While the FDA recommends that companies go through this voluntary consultation process to determine whether their new GM food would require pre-market approval, this is only mandatory if the GM food contains high levels of toxic substances or allergens or reduced levels of important nutrients. And this is what we still follow today. Um, But it's really different in Europe, where basically it's guilty until proven innocent, and you have to prove that a GMO is safe to the best of your ability. You have to prove that a new chemical is safe to the best of your ability before any of that can can go outside. I don't necessarily think it's a bad idea to have to prove something safe before it's introduced to all these places. But I actually kind of like the idea of thinking of a genetically modified food as, in general, the same food. In a lot of these cases, they're just making one very tiny change to make it produce a different nutrient or produce an insecticide. So this is one tiny change. The end product isn't really different. And if we know this one tiny gene that went into it hasn't been dangerous to people, then I would hope it wouldn't be that hard to prove it's safe. Right. But at the end of the day, playing devil's advocate from a scientific perspective, at least, when you're making a genetic modification, even whether it's in the lab or it's going to be in a food that somebody's going to be eating, you don't know whether the modifications you're making are going to be just in that one particular gene or if they're going to affect other loci. And you don't know if that's going to how that's going to affect us long term to pick. But maybe people can decide themselves. But then again, now we have all these sequencing technologies you could see if you have any other mutations. Mm -hmm. If you're just inserting one gene into one specific place, then you could sequence the entire rest of the organism, see every base, every single gene in there. And if nothing else has changed, then maybe it's a bit easier to presume you're innocent. I mean, with the technology we have today and the money these companies have, it shouldn't necessarily be that hard to do that level of stringency. For now, genetically engineered crops have still been steadily coming to market. Last year, for example, there was a so-called innate russet potato that was developed by the company Simplot. And this year, a non-browning Granny Smith apple, which was developed by Arctic Apples. So we've taken you through a little bit of a whirlwind of GMO perspectives in science. To find out more about what we talked about today, you can visit our website at sitn.hms.harvard.edu slash podcast, where we'll post more show notes and links to further resources. 
So also on our website, we have signal-to-noise science articles, which are written by graduate students and posted every other week. We have an entire special edition on genetically modified organisms, which was released just last month with a wonderfully comprehensive coverage of topics, if we do say so ourselves, which we didn't really have time to highlight today. You can feel free to ask us any questions and follow us on Twitter at SITN Harvard and on Facebook at SITN Boston. We'll try to answer all of them on or before our next episode. See you next time.